Then this morning in your Bible, we would invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 2. We'll be reading from verse 11 through 25. And in your pew Bible, you can find that section of Scripture on page 62. Well, we'll read from Exodus 2, verse 11 through 25. We'll focus uh, the words of this morning upon our texts that are found in verses 23 through 25. So hear now the Word of God from Exodus 2, beginning at verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way. When he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, And they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Reuel, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses. And she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And now begins the words of our text. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage. And they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Thus far for this morning, our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, good mothers, recognize and know their children, especially their infants' children's cries. It was always remarkable to me, especially when our children were younger, uh, you could have a a group of people together, and and maybe you had a a variety of households gathered together in some type of social setting. Uh, And an infant or a toddler would begin to to cry, uh, and the distinctive mother of that child knew instantly that was her child. She knew the cry of her child. And not only did she know the cry of her child, she responded to the cry of her child. She acted upon the cry of her child. She heard and instinctively knew that her child was in need of something. In a similar way, our Lord hears the cries of His children. And this morning, in the time afforded us before we have the administration of the Lord's Supper, 
Uh, I want to, using Exodus 2, verse 23, 24, and 25, set before you as the people of God uh, the picture of who your God is. As a God who hears the cries of His people. And hearing those cries has acted upon those cries. You can think of Isaiah 49, verse 15. And there the Lord asks a rhetorical question, Can a woman forget her nursing child? and not have compassion on the son of her womb? And the expected answer is, of course not. A good and a godly mother would never forget her child, especially a nursing infant. But then the Lord heightens the text and He says, surely they may forget. A mother may even forget her nursing infant child. Yet I will not forget you. And as you come out of the week gone past, and as you anticipate the week that lies ahead, that's the, that's the promise of the Gospel that's also displayed visibly and tangibly in our presence this morning as bread is broken and as wine is poured out. And as we take and as we receive these elements in an act of faith, we are reminded that our covenantal Lord God will not forget us. He will indeed hear us when we cry. And He has indeed acted in the great redemptive act of deliverance. And that ought to give us comfort and hope for our soul. And so we consider this theme this morning, God's remembrance of Israel. We'll consider this theme with three points. First of all, the time of remembrance. And then secondly, the action in remembrance. And then thirdly, the reason for remembrance. So we have God's remembrance of Israel. The time, the action, and the reason for this remembrance. First of all, the time of the remembrance could be stated as a time of prolonged oppression and a time of intense cries. And indeed, that's where the text itself places the emphasis. Uh, and there is uh, parallelism in the statement of verse 23. Now, it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage and they cried out. Now, notice the repeated emphasis. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So the text is clear that the sons of Israel are, are crying and are groaning because of the burden and because of the bondage and because of the oppression that they are experiencing. Because they are toiling away in slavery. And they have been toiling away in slavery underneath one Pharaoh after another Pharaoh. In any time a people live underneath an oppressive regime, whether it be of a, an ungodly king, or whether it be a brutal dictator, uh, the one element of hope is that the oppressive regime will pass and that new days of freedom, new days of liberation will come. And so you can think perhaps of the stories that are told uh, about uh, our homeland in the Netherlands as they lived underneath the occupation of Nazi Germany. Uh, there was this hope that a day of liberation would come, which indeed did come. But the text indicates that days had passed. Years had passed. One pharaoh uh, would die and another pharaoh would come to power. And yet the toil and the slavery of the Israelites continued year after year, decade after decade. And so they lived underneath this oppressive slavery with no hope for earthly deliverance. And that congregation sets forth a picture of a spiritual truth because that by nature is the plight of mankind, of all human beings. 
The great dilemma of humanity is not simply uh, an attempt to somehow alleviate worldwide poverty. Not simply uh, to try to raise the standard of living. The, the great plight of humanity is that we live underneath this oppressive bondage of the reality of sin. Now, many want to deny that, and many want to explain that away, many want to minimize that. And sadly, many within the broader church community want to also minimize the real essence of humanity's plight. Yet, Scripture is clear. You can think of the words that are spoken in Ephesians 2, verse 12, as they speak about a person, whether it be a young person or an elderly person, male, female, apart from Christ and apart from saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The predicament is that humanity lives without Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. Because of the reality of our rebellious act of sin, that is the plight of humanity underneath this oppressive bondage of sin. While that reality as it is experienced by the sons of Israel in Egypt underneath this Pharaoh led them to intense cries. They cry out. Ultimately, what this word means to cry out is an intense cry for help that arises from the heart. And boys and girls and young people, but all of us, we remind ourselves when the Bible talks about the heart, it doesn't refer to that organ that circulates blood by the repeated beatings, but rather it speaks about the very center of who we are as a person. The very center of our spiritual life. See, this cry that goes up in verse 23 and in verse 24 is not just some type of mere whimper. It's not just shedding a slight tear because of some irritant within life, but it is an intense desire for intervention, for divine intervention. The Israelites see and begin to understand and to comprehend at some level that they are stuck, you might say, in oppressive bondage and that they cannot save themselves. And there is no helper who's going to arise for them from amongst the pharaohs. And Moses begins to act as a deliverer. And yet they realize that they are in need of something more and of something greater. And so their cry goes up. And notice that the text is very specific in verse 23. Their cry goes up to God. And I ask you lovingly, but also pointedly this morning, is that where your cry goes up to? Up to God? Have you come, and again, by the way of renewed self-examination, have you come to an end of yourself? Knowing that you cannot help yourself. Knowing that no mere human being can help you. Knowing that not even the angels in and of themselves can help you in your plight. But that God must help you. And that God has helped you. And that God will help you. And that also will be displayed in a concrete, tangible way, as the elements of the Lord's Supper are distributed this morning. And so the question is, has an intense cry come up from your spiritual soul unto God because of the spiritual bondage of the reality of sin? This is the basic 
truths of the time of remembrance. The people of God, the covenant people of God, the Israelites, are in a time of prolonged oppression with intense cries. And God hears. And God acts. And that's what we consider in our second point, the action in remembrance. You'll notice if you just scan verses 24 and verse 25, that the real focus, and this is true all throughout Scripture, the real focus is not so much upon what the Israelites are doing. We did consider that in the time of remembrance. But the real focus is upon what God is doing. And always remember that when you take up your Bible and when you read. This is not a book that explains the actions of humanity as much as it is a book that explains the actions of divinity. God hears. God looks. And God knows. First of all, then God heard with a paternal perception. Verse 24 is heard. It's not like you might simply just hear people talking and just kind of note in some type of sensory way. Oh yes, I hear an audible sound. You might say that about many things. Well, I heard a car go down the road. I heard equipment out in the field. And maybe you might say, I've heard so much equipment out in the field that I no longer am able to hear very well. All of this refers to just the mere auditory experience. But something deeper is implied by these words. It is to perceive the cry of someone who is in need. That's what the Word God heard their cry. It is like the mother of the nursing infant. She doesn't just say, hmm, I hear a child crying in the background. But rather she perceives that that is her child who is in desperate need. And not only to hear in this type of a way, but then also to answer one's call for the necessary deliverance. All of this is bound up in a wonderful way with the Word that the Holy Spirit has chosen to begin to describe our Lord's action in verse 24. So God heard their groaning. And that also is an encouragement of the Gospel. When an individual person sincerely, earnestly cries out from the reality of their spiritual bondage. God hears. And God acts. And this is perhaps best exemplified with our Lord Jesus Christ in His earthly ministry. When an individual, whether it be a blind person, or whether it be a leper, or whether it be someone who had a loved one who had died, when they honestly and sincerely came to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, Son of David, have mercy on me. As far as I can tell, having read through the narratives of the Gospel account, every single time a person cried out to the Lord Jesus Christ in a sincere cry, Jesus stopped. Jesus acted. Jesus healed. And So that's the encouragement. Every single time that you or I or anyone who hears these words sincerely cries out for divine help because of the plight of spiritual oppression, God will hear in the day of grace. Not only does He hear, He also looks. And there's a wonderful building of these verbs. God heard and then God looked. And here again, as you see it in verse 25, and God looked upon the children of Israel. This is not just in some passing curiosity of observation. It's not like you might look at an exhibit in a museum 
Or like you might look at something in the zoo and go, oh yes, that's interesting. Now on to the next object of display. But rather what this word has is looking with, and this is what is so beautiful, looking with pity, looking with compassion, looking with a pity and a compassion that understands a person's dire predicament. So when a repentant sinner cries out for deliverance, God does not look upon that repentant sinner uh, with a haughty attitude of, well, you got yourself into that mess, now you get yourself out of that mess. But rather, our Heavenly Father and His eternal Son and the co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential Holy Spirit, this thrice holy God of whom we sang in our opening hymn, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, look upon the repentant sinner as they cry out in this time of duress and their heart, if we can speak that way, and we can because Scripture speaks that way, the heart of God is moved with pity, understanding our plight and our situation, and then acting upon it. But notice that it is directed in a particular way. And behind this would be all of of the doctrinal truths of sovereign election. God looks upon the sons of Israel with this pity. Notice that that is also emphasized by the very text itself. Verse 25, And God looked upon the children of Israel. Egypt at this point is a mixed company of persons. And the narrative, the preceding narrative, has emphasized that. Uh, there, there were the people of Egypt, you might say. And you well remember the story uh, that the sons of Jacob had gone down to Egypt. And they were residing in the midst of the Egyptians. Just as the covenantal people of God today also are scattered throughout the length and the breadth of the world. And certainly God in His omniscience beholds all of the children and all of the sons of men. But He has a particular eye of pitiful favor for the sons of Israel. If we may say it this way, certainly a good and a godly mother would consider all of the children in a social setting and look upon them with a certain beneficial spirit. But she has a special eye for her own children. As does a father. And as does the Heavenly Father. So as children of God this morning, be reminded that the God of heaven, the God of earth, the God of everything, has a soft spot, you might say. Sometimes we we talk about that. Well, he has a soft spot for his daughters. Or, Or grandpa, boy, that granddaughter has grandpa wrapped around her finger. And you can see in grandpa's eye a twinkle and a smile. Uh, when his granddaughter comes bounding up to him uh, and asks for something. Think of it in that way. That's the attitude of your Heavenly Father. Especially when you cry. Out of the realization of the spiritual bondage and oppression that by nature you are in. So God heard, God looked, and God knew. God knows. This, in verse 25, is... Translated in a variety of ways, in the New King James Version, which we have in our pew, God acknowledged them, but congregation, make no mistake. This is not just some informal acknowledgement. Uh, one thing I've learned 
since moving to Iowa, especially in the rural setting, is it seems that everybody waves to everybody. And I think I've gotten the wave down. I think you, you put your hand on top of the steering wheel and you just kind of raise a couple of fingers. Uh, your pointer finger. Uh, you just kind of give a nod, an acknowledgement. And, and so I've tried to pick up the local custom. Uh, and I've waved at people and I don't have any idea who they are. Maybe I should. Maybe they know me and hopefully then I'll learn to know them. But you just kind of tip your hat, so to speak. That is not what verse 25's acknowledgement means. It's not as if God just gives an informal wave or a tip of the hat. No, the word here is a very, very intimate acquaintance. God knew His people. He knew them in the bond of the covenantal love and affection. He bound Himself to them in His grace. So there is a wonderful parallelism. God looked in His attitude of pity and God knew with His attribute of grace. God has mercy and grace for those who cry out to Him. And the reason for all of this in our third point must be clearly stated also because our text states it. And if you've been following along uh, in your Bible, uh, you might be complaining internally right now saying, but, but you missed a word. You missed an action of God. You missed one of the, the verbs. And that omission was purposeful uh, until we got to our third point, the reason for the remembrance. Why did God remember His people? It was not on the meritorious ground of their crying. And we want to be clear this morning also, Certainly, genuine repentance is necessary for the experience of the forgiveness of sins. But repentance does not earn the forgiveness of sins. So even in the act of repentance, we come to the table of the Lord and we receive the elements of the bread and the wine, but we do not testify thereby that we in and of ourselves have earned or have gained acceptance with God. And, and, and Satan uses this lie to bombard the people of God. And even among those who should be mature in the Christian faith, you will often find this testimony that they don't feel worthy to come to the table of the Lord. And the problem is, and I say this with pastoral love, the problem in such a situation is, is because such persons are thinking that by their repentance they have to earn the favor of God. You and I can never repent enough to earn the favor of God. We can never feel sorry enough for our sins to somehow appease the wrath of God and to make satisfaction for God. So why does God hear and look and know His people? Because He has established His covenant with them. So notice verse 24 right there in the center of the text. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And as we considered yesterday, yesterday, last Sunday morning, with the administration of baptism, this covenant is God's gracious promise and agreement whereby He binds Himself to His people. A design to result in a relationship of warm fellowship that includes the forgiveness of sins and the right of eternal life. And all of this covenant is based 
not upon the actions of the sons of Jacob, but rather upon the actions of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. These benefits, the spiritual deliverance from the penalty of sin, death, and of the power of sin, spiritual bondage, these benefits, and we want to make this clear for all who hear, whether it be in this building, or whether it be through the radio, or whether it be through uh, some internet means, the only way to be relieved from the spiritual bondage and oppression of sin is through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, nothing is going to be displayed of human efforts or of human works. We're not going to hold some element up and say, now congregation, this displays the proper amount of sorrow for sin. Or this displays the proper amount of genuine repentance. Or this displays the necessary requirement of the strength of faith. The genuine people of God are going to have this testimony in their own hearts that their faith is often imperfect and weak. But that's exactly why the Lord gave us the sacrament. He understands our weaknesses. So in addition to appealing to our sense of hearing through the proclamation of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, He also comes to our eyes and to our hands and to our mouths and He says, hold, look, see, touch, taste. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. He has heard your cry which you continually bring forth out of the reality of your bondage to sin by nature. And He heard, and He looked, and He knew, because He has remembered His covenant, and He will remember His covenant to thousands of generations. Thanks be to God. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the sound of the Gospel and of the work of our great God, through Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You also that You now attach, so to speak, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to the proclamation of the Word of God. And may the souls of Your people be comforted and nourished. And may Your name be exalted. We ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.